0: Welcome to What She Said on 1059 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. As February bids us farewell, it's hard to ignore the early whispers of spring that it's giving us, which signals the changing of the seasons, but also a change in climate. It's also gifting us with an extra day, a leap year bonus. While we might not spend those additional 24 hours precisely on February 29th, it's a wonderful opportunity to do something meaningful with that extra time we so often wish for. I hope you'll choose to spend at least one of those hours right here with me, though. Here's what I have lined up for this week Julia Malott is here to discuss a topic that's been stirring significant conversation across Canada the use of puberty blockers for children with gender dysphoria. With politicians entering the dialogue now, it's a subject that requires a thoughtful and informed discussion. Julia, with her balanced perspective on complex issues, is here to share her thoughts on this sensitive debate. Anne Brody is back with her latest entertainment picks, and this week we're diving into The Monk and the Gun, a film that Anne describes as genius on many levels, and it's a contender for Best International Feature at this year's Oscars. We'll also laugh and cringe a little with Suze, featuring the talents of Michaela Atkins and rising star Charlie Gillespie. Amy Archibald Varley joins me to talk about The Wisdom of Nurses, a book she co-authored with Sarah Fung. Set for release on April 2nd, this book promises to be a profound exploration of the experiences and insights from the heart of healthcare. Yolanda Jung, a mental health possibilities coach, Shares her journey with bipolar disorder and discusses new treatments for depression and bipolar disorder, including RTMS, Brain Spec, and Ketamine. Yolanda's mission to bring hope to those suffering in silence is both inspiring and vital. And finally, Brienne Somerville introduces us to her debut novel, If I Lose Her, a psychological thriller that delves into the complexities of postpartum depression. Brienne's fresh voice in the genre promises a gripping read that's as thrilling as it is thought-provoking. So grab your favorite spot and join me for an hour of engaging conversations and insightful stories right here on 1059 The Region. Baby,
1: pour that sugar, and liquor only two. Spurs, spurs boots.
2: My mama told me when I was young, we all
0: In this interview, we're looking at a topic that's been making waves across the nation puberty blockers for children with gender dysphoria. Joining me is Julia Malotte, a respected voice in political discourse and the host of A Lot of Thoughts with Julia Malotte. Julia is known for her balanced take on hot button issues, and today she's here to shed some light on the nuanced debate surrounding puberty blockers. With politicians like Pierre Polyev now weighing in, it's clear this conversation needs a careful, holistic approach. Julia, welcome to What She Said. Thanks for having me today. So puberty blockers are, are at the heart of a very heated debate right now. So from your perspective, why is this issue so polarizing? And where do you see the possibility for some common ground?
3: I, I think it's polarizing be- for a lot of reasons, um, certainly because of the impacts of both using puberty blockers, but also of not using puberty blockers. Um, and that nuance is often getting missed in a lot of the discussions because people are coming at this from a very pro-transition for children angle or from a very anti-transition for children angle. But I think what's important to remember is that there is an irreversible decision either way. If a child goes on puberty blockers, then they they have not started their their puberty at the normal time, and they're very, very likely to proceed on cross-sex hormones. And there's implications of that. There's lifelong implications in terms of how it changes the body. I am transgender myself, of course, so I've experienced that. And that should not be taken lightly. At the same time, to not undergo puberty blockers, if you're gender dysphoric, means you're going to go through the puberty of your biological sex, which is also not fully reversible. People could probably hear that I sound like a man right now because I'm biologically male. And that's what happens with the male puberty. And so there's, there's high stakes in either direction on this conversation.
0: So you, as you've mentioned, sort of there's really profound implications of puberty blockers, both medically and socially. Can you expand on the balance then between these health implications and the autonomy of individuals making these decisions?
3: It's That really is, is the question, is, is how do we balance those? And when is a child at the point that they can make any decisions for themselves. I have a child. Uh, she's almost an adult. And I think sometimes she thinks she's an adult when she's not. And for myself, I say even when someone turns 18, like we've decided that somewhat arbitrarily in society that you are have this decision-making rights at 18. But there are certainly um many brain researchers who argue that the prefrontal cortex isn't developed fully in terms of, you know, kind of rounding out your decision-making abilities until upwards of 25 years old. Either way, though, when we're talking about puberty blockers, we're talking about younger teens. These kids could be as young as eight or nine years old when puberty um, starts. It could be a little bit older than that, but these are younger children and they don't know what's coming for them. They don't know what it means to be 28 years old and wishing that you could have a child that maybe you can't have because you suppress the puberty so that the, the go didn't develop in such a way that that was a possible future for you. However, like I said, too, if, if they don't transition, though... And the dysphoria does persist, then we are putting them in down a pathway where they're not going to pass, as it's known in the transgender community. So that's to say, be able to convince the world on cursory inspection that you are the biological sex that you wish you were, that your dysphoria is rooted in. So if I use myself as an example, I always felt this way. I'm old enough, though, that we weren't doing childhood transitions. So that wasn't a pathway available to me. And I eventually started transitioning at 28 years old. And so because of that, I am five for 10. I have a voice that is not as low as many men's, but certainly not up in the the female range. And I have a whole bunch of facial features that make it pretty obvious that I am biologically male. And we're, we're not in a world that is particularly accepting of that. We sometimes, I think, pretend that we are. But uh, I was in the news two weeks ago for my daughter's appendectomy. She had some encounters with the Ontario health care system, and we went public with it. And the the response to that article was pretty... Concerning to me because many of the conversations would devolve into judgments on whether or not I am a mother, whether or not I am fit to be a parent at all, being transgender. And this was not even the topic of the article. People just saw my picture, and that's what the discussion ended up heading.
0: And you know, you touched on something because the conversation often misses the reasons behind a gender dysphoric child's desire to transition. So, how can we better understand and communicate? Um, these motivations sort of to foster the empathy and understanding needed for for these
3: kids. Well, I think that is that is just it, is that there are lots of reasons playing into this. To a certain extent, it is about feeling affirmed. It's about seeing yourself the way that you want to be seen. And that is not unique to transgender individuals. That's something transgender individuals who are dysphoric certainly feel, but any teenager and many adults know that feeling of wishing that you looked differently, that you had different body features, that you presented differently to the world in terms of how you feel it would reflect how you feel. And broadly speaking, we don't encourage those permanent changes in a teenager. If your 14-year-old daughter comes up to you and says, my nose is too big, I need a rhinoplasty. I don't know about you, but I would not want to jump into that. I would say, no, you're beautiful. You're okay. We're going to leave this. And and maybe when she's 24, if she decides she still needs that nose, then I guess that's her choice. But I would want to affirm her for who she is. So that shouldn't be lost here in that that is important. But that piece that is different that gets missed is we live in a world that genders everything. We live in a world that tells us that the biological sex that we present to others, and, and I use that distinction Intentionally, because it's not actually about what your biological sex is. People don't usually see your genitals. It's about what people think your biological sex is. If they read you as a man, they treat you one way. If they read you as a woman, they treat you a whole different way. And there's depending on how you feel and depending on the context, either one can be a benefit or can be you know can work against you. I'm not here to say which one is better, but they're very different. And if you're looking for that, if you feel that sociologically speaking, you want to fit into the world in one way or the other, your avenue to do so is most effective when you transition young. And and that's the motivation to go on these blockers and these hormones.
0: Finding middle ground on this issue seems almost impossible. (laughs) You know, uh, we recorded a longer podcast, and I I really encourage people to go over and listen to that entire podcast. But that middle ground seems elusive. Um, What steps do you think we need to take to move towards sort of that middle ground for both sides of this debate so that we can have a better outcome?
3: I think that the majority of Canadians in the middle need to speak up and take an interest so we can work through this matter that we haven't been able to really fully work through. Um, I have lots of friends in politics and the media, and they often remind me that most Canadians are not polarized on this issue the way that the extremes are. We have this extreme progressive left on the far side that is very unwilling to look at any risks, any regret, anything that can maybe be a bit overreaching in terms of current transgender policy. We then have another side. Sometimes it's rooted in social conservatism, but sometimes it's actually just rooted in its own flavor of radical feminism, which is more of a leftist movement that is extremely anti-trans and wants to see the whole thing abolished and treats people who are transgender as though they are subhuman. (laughs) And those extremes exist, but most people are in the middle in this place where they have compassion towards the gender dysphoric. They also might have a few concerns with some policies. They probably don't understand all of this complexity and nuance in terms of how all of this fits together and what can go wrong and what all, all of the policies currently are. But that's where the solution space lie too in that middle space. And those aren't the people having the conversation most of the time. It's people who are willing to enter this very, very charged conversation from one of those two extremes.
0: Uh, you know that middle ground is is so needed in almost every conversation we're having um anymore on on everything climate change education healthcare it doesn't matter we we desperately need to find a middle ground it is it is driving us so far apart it's 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 almost hard to see a way back exactly. and so i do i do um want to thank you for joining me and and expressing your desire to find that common ground with people and i want people to be able to connect with you uh and follow you so where can they do that julia
3: so I am on uh, Twitter, or X as we're supposed to call it nowadays, um, as Alotta Malotta. That's hard to spell, but if you search up Julia Malat, you'll also find me there as well. Um, I also write a column weekly for the National Post, so you can find my work there, where I sometimes discuss gender matters more often than not these days, um, but I also talk about some of our other social and political matters as well. And I have a YouTube channel and an Instagram channel also under Alotta Malot, which are baby channels that I'm growing because I don't want to be on just Twitter.
0: (laughs) I don't know that anybody wants to be just on Twitter anymore. It is a rough place to be. Uh, Julia, thank you so much for joining me today. We'll have you back again soon. Thanks so much.
3: More with Candace Sampson and What She Said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
1: Said I don't want to leave you lonely. You gotta make me change my mind.
0: It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies with Ann Brody, and we're kicking off with a look at a monk and a gun. What a story. This
4: is the most wonderful film I've seen in a long while, and it's from Bhutan by a Bhutanese uh, filmmaker, his second uh, big release. So it's set in 2006 when television and internet had finally arrived in Bhutan, and the, em- the king had stepped down. Uh, in order to give people the v- say in their own future. So there were going to be elections. They'd have to teach everybody how to vote and what it means. Of course, nobody wants it because they were happy under their king for, you know, millennia. Uh, anyway, so an American guy shows up, really an entitled, wealthy kid, you know, uh, with a Bhutanese uh, guide. And he's looking for an American Civil War gun. And lo and behold, doesn't he find it in this tiny, tiny village and this little old man owns it. The little old man's had it for decades and it's not in good shape. So the American offers them, believe it or not, in Bhutan in the middle of nowhere, $75,000 for it. The The man says, "No, nope. <laughs> that's too much. What am I going to do with that? Then he says, well, take 35. And the guy says, oh, all right. And then, um, The next day, a monk shows up. Now, he's been sent by his llama to get a gun. Find a gun anywhere because the monk, the excuse me, the llama wants to set things straight. Whatever that means. So he comes to the fellow's house and he hands him the gun for nothing, leaving the American out in the cold. So then the American and his guide have to chase the monk and the monk has the gun. Anyway, there are so many incredible insane twists and turns in this fabulous film. Uh and like what a closer. It, and it's so interesting to see a country on the verge of change the way we see it there. And um you know the the what greed is all about.
0: The American is just such a, a bad example of a of a foreigner. Well, listen, I would I would never knock democracy because I am all for democracy. Yeah but what oh, i course. did what i did note in the trailer which i thought was very interesting was seeing how suddenly when you had to pick a side it was actually yeah. causing division in the family uh, yes. yes which Just is quite like today, interesting right yes yeah. Interesting. yes yeah so yeah. very yeah. interesting and, and Anne, is this a true story like is it true that they did not have internet until 2006 yes
4: oh yeah wow. It's it, it's totally a rural spiritual country or was. Very interesting. So, yeah, this is what's
0: what's happening. All right. Listen, I have to tell you, I think Suze looks delightful. <laughs> I grinned from ear to ear watching that trailer. So please tell me it lives up to those expectations. It's lovely.
4: It's really fun. And oh my God, what a what a charismatic young man stars in it. Charlie Gillespie. My interview with him is on the site. So he plays a high school loser whose girlfriend is running off from Hamilton, I think, to McGill to go to university. Her mother, Suze, has just been dumped by her husband uh, for his pregnant girlfriend. So she's got to deal with a daughter gone, a husband abandoned her. And she discovers that the young man, Gage, that he has a really rough home life. So she takes him in, and the two of them sort of help each other. And this kid, Charlie Gillespie, oh my word, the actor. He is so incredibly um, star-powered and uh, eloquent and and goofy and fun. He's really a, an up-and-comer.
0: and I have to tell you, just watching him, his star yeah, power I jumped off the screen. Right. He is going to be huge.
4: Yes, he is. He is. So the two of them decide to run off to Montreal to see the daughter, who hasn't answered her mother's phone calls in a month. Um, the daughter comes out, rebuffs them completely, sends them home, off they go. And, um, and then they have to support each other. And then, you know, things happen. Um, I'm not giving anything away, but the daughter does show up. It is so funny, so wild, so off kilter. And really, I think depends on this Charlie Gillespie's performance. Wouldn't you agree?
0: Oh, well, like I said, I cannot wait to see the whole thing, but yeah. I could feel his presence. Like he really does have that star power. He will be very big. There's no doubt. Yeah. Uh, and I actually already on the video on YouTube, I'm seeing some girls in there jumping in with their comments, and <laughs> 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 That's also, he's also not hard on the eyes. No, um, no, no. <laughs> all right. We don't have a lot. We don't have long left, but I would... I would like to point out that you, after, what, four years of of interviewing with you now, you have finally turned me over to British detective series. I am obsessed. I'm obsessed. I can't get enough. Oh, happy, happy. I I was pleased to see Vera this week. Oh, my God. Candice,
4: you're going to have the greatest time. She's done 13 seasons. Every single one of them is amazing. I'm glad you appreciate it. It's a totally different... Kind of crime drama from anything you'd find here or in the states. It's sort of, um, sort of based on Nordic noirs, but oh yes, and it's so wonderful in terms of character development. You see and you care about these people almost immediately. It's just so. I'm so happy. This to me is a real victory.
0: <laughs> Yay! Candace. You've won. You've won, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Vera is on Britbox, right?
4: Britbox and just three episodes this season. Pray to God she's not leaving. Um, so anyway, enjoy them. They're so good. Uh,
0: all right, well you're gonna have these and a whole bunch more over on what she and we will talk next week. We will indeed. Thanks, Candace.
1: I said I told you that I loved you and there ain't no more to say.
0: Next segment, I'm joined by Amy Archibald Varley. Amy, alongside Sarah Fung, has co-authored The Wisdom of Nurses, a compelling new book set to be released on April 2nd and available for pre-order now. This book promises to be an enlightening read offering insights and stories from the heart of healthcare. Amy, welcome to What She Said.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Could you share with us what inspired you and Sarah to write The Wisdom of Nurses?
1: Wow! Oh, our inspirations were many. Um, but it, it really actually started with, um, feeling silenced. I, I, again, as nurses, we 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 are seen often, but not necessarily heard. And I think we we both had a a, a very challenging uh, mental health, um, episode in which we we felt compelled to raise our voices which led us to a podcast called the greeners podcast And really all we wanted to do was share stories of grit from the front lines about things that that really meant the most to us and and also you know amplify not just nursing voices but patient stories um because we felt that there is true there's value to hearing our perspectives and um That was kind of how it all took off. And I think that, you know, I think back about the process and kind of where we where we are today, and we would have never been able to do what we were able to do if we didn't take the time to say, you know what, our voices do mean something. We do add value to the conversation and seeing that nurses are agents of change.
0: And and this book is described as a tribute to the nursing profession. How do you hope it will impact both healthcare professionals and the general public?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that we said is although the book is about nursing and it's about the wisdom of nursing that this book is actually for anybody. Anybody can read this book and really take some gems and and some and some um learnings from the book. And we we truly believe that, you know, um the the ability to again share our stories will help people not just nurses but other people, the general public understand a little bit more about nursing and have a different insight. I think that, you know, one of the things that we actually said in the book is, you know, name a famous nurse. Can you name a famous nurse? Um, but Florence Nightingale, I bet everybody everybody said everybody's and that's what everyone said, (laughs) Florence Nightingale, but there's so many more pioneer nurses and nurses who've done such amazing things that people don't know about. And we want to really bring that out, um, through stories that way, as well as, you know, challenging people to have a different image and perspective of nursing and, um, and also to change the dialogue on, you know, who name a famous nurse. And maybe, uh, hopefully, at the end, you'll be able to name some many, many more.
0: Can you give um, us a sneak peek into one of the stories or themes that readers can look forward to in The Wisdom of Nurses?
1: Oh my goodness. Absolutely. So here's a little bit about my nerdy side. So of course we're, we're going to go through, you know, patient stories. We're going to talk about, you know, our nursing experiences and, and those little tips that you might see on the, um, the nursing unit that most patients might not hear. So, you know, we have funny stories, heartfelt stories, um, emotionally driven stories, but we also, here's my nerdy bit, have ghost stories. So I definitely Whoa. have my little tale of my, first interaction of having a ghost instance at a hospital and I, I you know we there's initiation in every profession and this was my first initiation into the nursing profession so stay tuned uh, to hear mine and sarah's ghost stories um in the wisdom of nurses just a little oh, I did aspect. not
0: I did not expect you to say that I, uh. so now i definitely need to read it that's that's actually i want to read it so badly right now <laughs> Just for that, um. So, Yay. is do you, are you already planning sort of your next book?
1: You know, uh, we we get that question quite often, and I think we're always thinking about what's next for um. You know, myself and Sarah, and for the Gritty Nurse Podcast. And again, we have so much experience and so many things that we can talk about. So we're always planning, and we're hoping that for sure we'll bring a book number two eventually to to all you folks as well. Do you dive
0: into the current state of healthcare in this book as well?
1: You know, we do touch on some aspects of the current state of healthcare, not too much because we we didn't want this book to solely focus on, you know, COVID or or just politics. We really wanted people to understand what it is um that nurses bring to the table. What is it that nurses what what is the value that is in the, the story and the wisdom of nursing and nurses as as a professional team. Because I think a lot of people might not even see or understand that nurses are experts as well. So we really wanted to um, have that more of uh, a fully rounded book. Not saying that we shy away from poli- politics, because we definitely don't. But um, we, we touch on a lot of different aspects. But I wouldn't say our sole focus is just being political in this book.
0: And and I just want to let people know that you definitely do not shy away from these bigger topics definitely that you not. and I recorded a longer podcast as well, and people can go over and listen to that right now where we do dive into sort of how uh, healthcare has become, you know, very political and, and you know, the privatization, the creep of privatization. So I encourage people to go listen to that. But in the meantime, where can they find you on social media and where can they find the
1: book? Right. So you can find me uh, on Twitter or LinkedIn. So my Twitter handle is at amyvarley.com, uh, Amy Varley. Uh, my Instagram handle, handle is Amy A. Varley. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Amy Archibald Varley. I have a website, AmyVarley.com. And you can find the book on um, – you can actually go to the HarperCollins website or it's available – it will be available um, on any – any store so indigo chapters um amazon um you can avail it's available for pre-order now um, but it'll be it'll hit all bookstores uh april 2nd
0: all right wonderful i'm gonna put all the links to that uh in the blog post that goes out after this airs on radio so amy thank you so much for joining me today
1: thank you so much for having me
0: next interview, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Brienne Somerville, a fresh and compelling voice in the world of psychological thrillers. Brienne, a Queen's University alumna with a rich background in English literature and theatre, has recently stepped into the literary spotlight with her debut novel, If I Lose Her, which confronts the harrowing challenges of postpartum depression, weaving a tale that asks the chilling question, who can you trust when you can't trust yourself? With her protagonist, Joanna Baker, Brienne explores the dark crevices of the mind and the societal pressures that come with motherhood. As a first-time published author, Brienne brings a fresh perspective to the thriller genre, promising to keep readers on the edge of their seats while touching on deeply personal and universally relevant themes. Brienne, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great intro. (laughs) So if you could, let's talk about sort of, what it's like being a first-time published author. What has this journey been like for you from the sort of the initial idea to seeing your book now in readers' hands?
5: It's very surreal. Um, So this whole process started nearly six years ago. So quite a long time ago, I was on maternity leave with my firstborn. Um, It was, you know, the sleepless uh, nights, the very elongated days that seemed to never end. And that loneliness that first-time moms or any mom really experiences um, in those early months with a new baby. So I started to kind of jot down some of my my concerns, my fears, things I was a little bit afraid to admit maybe to my my partner, to my family, even to myself. And from there, those really kind of took, they took flight um, and they started to turn into a fictional idea. And then that's when I really started to explore Joanna Baker's story. So now it's, you know, it's been quite a journey and um, it's very surreal now to see that people can start to read it. And has the genre of thrillers always been, you know, something you've loved personally? Absolutely. Um, I definitely have a bit of a dark side. So that really began, I would say, when I was little, I loved mysteries. So I read The Boxcar Children. Um, I was really drawn to those. Um, the Olsen Twins had a mystery series that I loved. <laughs> um, and then my mom, she she has a dark side too. So she got me into some of the early horror movies that she enjoyed as a child. So I watched The Exorcist way too young. I think I was 11. Um, and Annamieville Horror was another one. And um, she also loved, you know, Unsolved Mysteries and Dateline. So I would watch that with her and my sister. And then I really got into some of the domestic suspense. I think the first one I read that really drew me in would have been um, Sherry Lapina. She's a Toronto author. And her, her first debut was um, The Couple Next Door. And it explored some similar themes. And I thought, ooh, this is really cool. I want to read more of this. So the theme of your book is
0: is really compelling, but it's also sensitive. You focus on postpartum depression and the profound impacts of that. So what inspired you to explore this topic in particular for, for
5: the thriller format? Absolutely. Um, so I personally suffered from postpartum anxiety um, with my first. I, I found it incredibly overwhelming. And I think I kind of used my writing um, as a bit of a way to get that down on paper Um, get some of my fears um, out in the open. And I found that this is something as I've, as I've shared the book and as I've, um, you know, been speaking with friends a lot, it's very pervasive. A lot of women have gone through postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety um, throughout their, their maternity leaves. And I started thinking like, why aren't we talking about this more? Um, So, you know, when you think about what kind of draws people to horror it's that feeling of isolation that feeling of like psychological horror in particular is um you know you can't trust your narrator or your your main character um there's a lot of playfulness with the mind and and what it what is taking place is that actually true or um can you actually you know doubt what what's what your narrator is um actually telling you so I thought that was very intriguing. And I had a lot of fun with it once I got into the the fiction part. So you had some obvious and some personal experience then. Did you have to do a lot of research as well into postpartum depression? I did do um, some research just mainly on Google, um, reading articles, reading other personal stories. A lot of the experiences um, were based on my own feelings. So when I describe how um, her depression or her anxiety feels, that was just from my own kind of visceral reaction um, to my own experience. Um, but I did do a, a lot of talking with other moms who have gone through similar things. And it's been nice to hear some, some of the early readers come back and, and say to me, it feels very raw and it feels authentic. Um, a lot of them had had similar experiences and, and found that it captured it well. So that's always a good thing. I think the surprising thing about
0: postpartum depre- depression or postpartum, um, you know, uh, I guess we, is
5: it depression? Is that what we call it? Yeah. Um, in, my, in my case, I found more of my anxiety was amplified. Anxiety. Um, okay. Because I think what's
0: interesting is I think a lot of women don't realize they had it until they reflect back and say, oh, wow, that's what that was. And that certainly that was my experience. I didn't realize it in the moment at all. It wasn't until years later, upon reflecting on it, that I that I realized it. So I, I, you're absolutely right um, that this is something we need to be talking
5: about more. Mm-hmm. I think I think so many women are never diagnosed. Like they yeah. they think back and they and they wonder like, oh, I just assumed that was everybody's experience. Um, so yeah, I think it's important. And so the
0: teaser for the book hints at Joanna's journey to uncover the truth amidst her blackouts and the accusations against her. So how did you balance the elements of suspense and then this exploration of like sort of a real personal and internal struggle?
5: Yeah, that was definitely a challenge because you, I mean, part of the thriller genre is you want people to be turning those pages quickly, you know, trying to guess um, who's behind it. But you also have to be so sensitive to a topic that is this serious and um, is very personal to people so i think for me i just tried to ensure that anytime there was moments where joanna is questioning herself that there really is this authentic experience that she she doesn't she takes time to think about you know the challenges of motherhood she really doubts herself a lot and i think the reader goes on this journey with her they want they want to root for her she you know she's like their best friend who's just had a baby and they want to go through that journey with her and they want to uncover the truth because I think people really will connect with her. It is a universal um, issue and I think people will definitely connect with her.
0: So are you currently writing your, your sophomore novel? Can you share how yeah. the experience of writing If If I Lose Her has shaped your approach to the next project?
5: Yes. So this, this story idea, it's called What She Left Behind. And it's actually um, planned to be published in August 2025 with the same publisher, Rising Action. Um, and it was an idea I had actually before I pursued. If I lose her, it was kind of on the on you know the back of my mind. And it's about a woman who um, she agrees to oversee the renovations of her parents' century home while they're in Florida for the winter. And she becomes very fascinated with the previous owners and their tragic past. She actually discovers a diary um, of a 16-year-old who allegedly committed suicide. And she becomes very enthralled in this diary. She finds a connection with this this girl and tries to um, uncover some secrets that are still kind of left unknown.
0: I you know I speak to a lot of authors on this show, and I always just want to like dive into your brains and figure out how you come up with these things because I love how creative you are uh thinking of these storylines that's incredible
5: yeah it's it's funny like and i think I think a lot of writers are constantly just thinking in the in the background about characters and and voice and and different plot situations so i think i I tend to do a lot of thinking at night. And I'll keep my phone nearby and I'll jot down notes. It used to be by hand, but now I use my my iPhone and jot down notes when I have an idea. And sometimes they just, you know, fall and, and you forget about them. But other times they can come back and you can uh, reignite them. Well, I'm excited for people to find your book and connect with you. So where can they do that? Absolutely. So um, it's available March 5th, um, um, wherever books are sold. So Indigo, Amazon, your local indie, um, you can check them out. Locally, I will be doing some book signings at Chapters New Market on March 17th and at um, Indigo Hillcrest on March 23rd. Um, So you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Brianne Somm, S-O-M-M. And I'm also on, on X, I guess we call it now. (laughs) <laughs> and TikTok yeah. too, if you like that. So yeah, check me out and, and I hope you read and I hope you enjoy. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Candice. This was a lot of fun.
3: More with Candice Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
1: It's all so peaceful
4: on the other side. Forget troubles, come on, get happy.
1: You better chase all your cares away.
0: My next guest, Yolanda Jung, is a mental health possibilities coach. Through her own lived experience with bipolar disorder over the last 23 years, she has helped bring hope to those suffering in silence. Her passion and mission in life is to take the lessons she's learned from her struggles and share them with as many people as possible. Today, she is joining me to discuss new treatments for depression and bipolar disorder, including RTMS,
2: brain spect, and ketamine. Welcome back to What She Said, Yolanda. Thanks so much for having me, Candace. It's really great to see you again. And having
0: lived with bipolar disorder for over two decades, have you personally explored any of these new
2: treatments I just mentioned? I've actually explored and tried all three of those treatments
0: myself. Oh, excellent! Yeah. Okay, fantastic.
2: Well, let's start with RTMS then, please. Sure. So RTMS stands for repeated transcranial magnetic stimulation, and this is where they place a um, a bit of like a Probe, or um, it could be a helmet that's placed on your head. And um, through magnetic stimulation, it actually targets the emotional center of your brain, which is usually the frontal, the left frontal lobe. And it's supposed to help stimulate um, synapses happening or not happening in your brain, which tend to be the cause of um, severe depressive symptoms. And the stimulations last about three minutes. It's not really painful. Um, it just feels like something tapping on you. It's uh, quite different from ECT, which is convulsive therapy. And you are supposed to go every day for 30 days. So that's the RTMS treatment that I went through last year.
0: And did you find it made a significant impact?
2: So I have to mention that everything I shared today is from my own personal experience and everyone's experience will be different. So just because it worked for me or it didn't work for me, it doesn't mean someone else will have the same experience. So I really want to make that clear. So for me, unfortunately, RTMS did not work and it actually made my symptoms much worse. And this unfortunately happens to about 5% of the patients that try this treatment because just like with medication, not every medication is right for everybody. Um, but I have heard amazing stories of other people trying RTMS, which is why I put myself on the wait list for over a year before I got to have the treatments myself.
0: So let's move on to the next one then. Tell me about brain SPECT.
2: What is that? Um, I'm not sure if I fully remember the entire acronym, but um SPECT, I think it's single proton emission computed tomography. So it basically, um, you sit in this machine that feels and looks like an MRI. And Candace, I have pictures of all of these, so I'll send them to you. You can like splice them or do whatever. So people can actually get a visual. Um, but it's very, it doesn't take very long. Um, they inject a kind of dye into, into, uh, your, like through IV and it's checking for your blood flow in every part of your brain. And this is a um, treatment method that's used a lot for treatment of dementia, um, a diagnosis. It's not really used very widely in Canada for treatment or diagnosis of mental illness. So I actually had to go to New York City to have this pro- um, procedure done. And it's at the, the Amen Clinic, um, and I've read a lot of books from Dr. Eamon, which is why I was really interested in this. And the interesting thing that the scan discovered about me and my brain is that I actually have had some kind of childhood brain injury, um, that definitely impacted my mood. And I didn't really know. And I asked my parents, they don't really remember, but the doctor said, you know, it could be. Something very minor, but because of my sensitivity to these things that could have really thrown me off track. Um, And you can see it in the scan itself, which I have as well. I can share with you um, that there's a dark area and that actually shows that there is no brain flow, uh, sorry, blood flow in that part of the brain. And also, I discovered that I actually have post traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, and that can all show in the actual scan, based on hundreds of thousands of scans and the patterns that they discovered for people with this kind of scan tend to have these symptoms, and these kind of treatments would work better. So I was just trying to find more answers. And that was very interesting to me. And they also have a part that I was curious about, because my grandfather um, died from Alzheimer's. And so it's a genetic, I have a genetic predisposition. So part of the scan, they can actually tell whether you have early onset of Alzheimer's as accurate or dementia as accurate as seven years. So I thought, okay, I'm good for seven years. <laughs> I don't have that right now. Um, so it gives you a bit of a peace of mind. That's incredible. Uh, let's,
0: let's get to the last one because I think this is probably the most controversial for people yeah. is, is
2: ketamine. Yeah. So ketamine. You know, is a really, yes, like you said, it's, it's a bit controversial, um, or very controversial, depending on your, um, viewpoint. I have known about ketamine for almost two years. And I think because of the controversial nature of taking psychedelics, um, and the dangers around it, where you always hear about these things, I really resisted in trying it, even though I, I, I could have really used the help. Because I do have treatment-resistant depression, and I I know we talked about this before, but I I've tried thirty-three different combinations of medications over two plus decades, and the prerequisite to get into a ketamine treatment is two failed attempts. So I, yeah. you know, more than you were <laughs> oh. easily in. Yeah, I was easily in, but I just was like psychedelics. I've never tried it before. I don't know. Is it going to make me worse? And um, so after RTMS failed for me, I thought this is this is it. I need to try this. I really don't have that many options left. I mean, how many more medications can I try? So I started ketamine treatments, and and I have to tell you, like again, everybody's reactions can be different. I don't want to bring false hope to anyone, but I went in to the infusion feeling so depressed. I barely could walk, like just, I was so down and tired and fatigued. And I was having suicidal ideation. They do a survey, right? Like, and so all these questions I I answered yes to. And I woke up two hours later. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't like cured or anything, but like I just felt this lightness, like this weight was just like lifted from my body, from my head. I was like, what did you guys do? Like, what is that? And also, why did I wait so long? Um, So the way ketamine works is that it actually helps your brain to develop more synapses. And it's called brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF. So if you think of it as like a garden, right, and our brain is just not like, fertile enough to grow flowers. And that's what happens when you're depressed. It it just doesn't have enough synapses. So ketamine stimulates and increases these BDNF levels, almost like miracle grow. You know, it just like pours like miracle grow on this soil that is not growing anything, which is my brain. And then it just starts to like grow flowers and it it, overnight, (laughs) like it's like the beanstalk. Um, so that's actually how really ketamine works. And it also blocks the activity of this other receptor called NMDA. I know it's like a lot of acronyms, but basically if this receptor is blocked, then people who are depressed will not feel the depression as severely. Um, the only downside, I mean, really, I think the only downside with ketamine is that it's not permanent. Um, It's not like, oh, I feel better and then I'm better forever. You have to keep going to get these treatments. For the first four weeks, I went twice a week. And it's a lot of time commitment because the clinic that I was going to, that I am going to, is in Mississauga. And so the whole experience takes half a day. And then I'm really tired by the end of it. And then I take another two hour nap. So basically, a whole day is gone. for for me some people may not get so tired it just depends and then for the next 4 weeks you go once a week and so they stretch it out so that it increases what's called the durability of ketamine but you if you want to maintain wellness you still have to do lots of other things like therapy exercise eating well ketamine doesn't replace those things but it does make me more able to do them. Because when I was severely depressed, I could barely get out of bed. I'm not going to go out and exercise or have a, you know, productive therapy session. But ketamine kind of just like lifts me up enough and gives me enough of those synapses in my brain um, that helps me to start doing more things that increases my wellness. So, what advice would you give to
0: someone then who's listening to this segment and is considering one of these treatments but is is not sure because, as you said, one worked one didn't um and and maybe it's cost, maybe it's it's nervousness What would you suggest to them
2: yeah and and that is a really hard question for me to answer because everyone is just so different. I would say that the one biggest advice I would offer is don't give up hope. Like really, whatever happens, don't give up hope. Um, I've been there so many times where I just thought there's nothing more to do. Maybe this is the end for me. You know, this is what my life is going to be like now. And it's really sad. So I I know how that feels. And choosing a treatment is a tough decision and it has to be Something that you go into with an open mind and talk to with your doctor to make the best decision. And, you know, if, if I were to say choosing between RTMS, brain spec scan, ketamine, I mean, they're all quite different. Um, I would choose RTMS because it's free in Canada. It's covered under OHIP, whereas Excellent. both of the other options are not. They're very expensive. I feel very privileged to be able to access those treatments. I wish more people could. I wish, you know, I mean, this is a this is a whole other podcast interview, but like my view on mental illness and physical illness and how they are treated. But really, I think the message I would love to deliver is just don't lose hope. Keep trying. You will get there. There will be a right solution for you. And I think, um, having that mentality of positivity as much as possible, having a good support network, following Candice's amazing episodes with all these great mm-hmm. women just fills you up with joy and hope. I think it's just really important to, to have more of those in, in your life. I think that's really important.
0: Well, I I am so grateful that you share all of this very openly and publicly with people. Uh, It's important that you do, and and you're doing such great work in, in, in all of that. So I want people to be able to immediately when
2: they're done listening to this is go find you. So where can they do that? So I post a lot about my journey on my LinkedIn account, as well as Instagram. So Instagram might be the easiest place to look for me. My account is business.doula. Or you can look for me on LinkedIn, Yolanda.jum on LinkedIn. So Z-H-A-N-G-Y-O-L-L-A-N-D-A. And that's where I share a lot of videos, thoughts, resources, um, and feel free to connect with me. I would really love to be of
0: support. All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was incredibly enlightening.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I think it's I'm really grateful for you, Candace, to create this kind of platform for people, women, you know, and to give me the opportunity. This is, I think, my third or fourth interview now with you talking about different aspects of mental health. And I think you are incredible, like really to oh, have you. this, you know, it's not easy doing what you do. And I know that. And you really give a lot of voice to important issues. So thank you so much. That's it for
0: What She Said
2: this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by
0: signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 1059 The Region.
3: Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059TheRegion.com.